Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. Good morning, or evening, or everything in between, and welcome to the 10th episode of the All Things Unity podcast. It's, well, been a while, and finally we're here again. This is part 5 of a deep dive into alternatives to Uncle Bob's clean code. We're doing a book called A Philosophy of Software Design by John R. Oosterhout. And in the last episode, we covered chapter 15 to 17. And chapter 15 was all about writing your comments first, which I dub like Common Driven Development, CDD. And I never really tried it, but since I like TDD, test-driven development, I might give it a try. Professor Ausserhout talks about all the benefits of writing the comments before you actually write the implementation. And we followed it up with a chapter 16, which was all about modifying existing code. But we quickly found out that this chapter focused more on keeping comments in sync with the code than actually proving decent strategies to modify your existing code. And you can go back and listen to the previous episodes if you want to have all the details about that. And the last topic of the previous episode was consistency. And consistency is a really important topic in the context of software development, since it provides programmers with intuition and it will raise the abstraction level. We discussed the value of consistency and we reviewed all the tips Professor Ousterhout gave to keep code consistent. So next up is chapter 18 and it's titled Code Should Be Obvious. And interestingly, this chapter comes after all the information about comments. This shows the importance of comments and summaries in the eyes of Professor Ousterhout, I think. He puts so much emphasis on comments in this book, and I think comments deserve a lot of attention because most of them are crap anyway, so having a decent practice on how to use and write comments is pretty good. But I think decent coding practices are far more important than comments. But alright, it's it's really nice though that there's actually literature that well focuses on comments. Because not many like books or blogs or videos or whatever kind of content focus on actually writing comments. It's all about writing code and software design, right? So Professor Ausserhout says that obscurity is one of the main causes of complexity. And it occurs when important information is not obvious to existing or new developers. The solution is, of course, to write code that is more obvious. Clean code, as many would call it. And we have discussed this for the past, well, nine episodes now. So I think we have a good grasp of what the heck clean code is and what it means. But in this chapter, Professor Ausserhout will share some of his tips to make code more obvious. When code is obvious, someone can read it really quickly without much thought and their guesses, or as Professor Austerhout puts it nicely in the book, it increases intuition. And intuition is such a nice term to use here, I think. When code is intuitive, 
the reader does not have to spend much time and effort to understand the code in order to add new features or fix a bug or just to adapt it. It will increase their efficiency but also their effectiveness to actually be able to solve bugs. And the best thing of all, obvious or intuitive code requires less comments and documentation. And well, I'm so glad he finally said this and I'll repeat it. Obvious code needs fewer comments than non-obvious code. And this is exactly what Uncle Bob says in Clean Code. And as you might have noticed from the previous episode, like I gravitate more to Uncle Bob's approach than Professor Ousterhout's. I just think that following Uncle Bob's practices for clean code result in a cleaner code base than large classes with long functions and lots of comments. But then again, there are some gems in this book that, well, you cannot easily ignore. Like the mindsets while programming, or deep versus shallow modules, or defining errors out of existence, or common-driven development, which I still yet have to try out. So I, I think the combination of clean code and a philosophy of software design go hand-in-hand hand pretty well. But let's continue with the book before we drift off into another dimension entirely. And Professor Ausserhout then also correctly says that obvious is in the mind of the reader. It is highly subjective. It's easier to notice that someone else's code is non-obvious than to see problems with your own code. And John says that the best way to find out if your colleagues find your code obvious is, well, through code reviews. And although he's right, I would argue that pair programming, or uh, like mob programming even, will be far more effective than simply code reviews. I think you should combine these practices in order to create an obvious code base. So let's discuss some of the techniques Professor Ausserhout suggests to make code more obvious. And the two most important techniques have already been discussed in the previous chapters, and they are choosing good names and, well, consistency. We've talked about this in depth in the previous episodes, so well, go back and have a listen if you haven't yet. There are a few other ways to make code more obvious, and that is, well, a judicious use of white space. And Professor Ausserhout says that the way code is formatted can impact how easy it is to understand the code and read it. And this highly correlates with the advice given by Uncle Bob, right? He has an entire chapter dedicated to formatting in his clean code book both horizontal and vertical formatting, by the way. And Professor Ausehau talks about how white spaces and new lines will increase readability of your code. And in clean code, this is referred to as horizontal and vertical openness, respectively. You can use a new line in order to separate concepts in functions. Like for example, if you have a guarding if statement at the top of your function, leave an empty line below the guarding statement to put more emphasis on it. And for horizontal openness, you can use white spaces to separate concepts from each other, like adding white spaces between mathematical operators or logical operators in if statements or arguments in a loop. 
And another greatly standardized example of horizontal openness would be white spaces between arguments of a function. And luckily, our IDEs enforce these standards by default, so we don't have to worry about these things as much. And another practice John uses to make code more obvious is again, well, comments. And I agree that sometimes you simply cannot express certain things in code and thus a comment is acceptable. This, the, the perfect example for this is the exclusive index in the substring function again. But let's always remind ourselves that comments are not the only way to explain the things that are not obvious from the code. And they are certainly not an excuse to write bad code. And next up, Professor Outzerhout lists some of the things you can make code. Next up, Professor Outzerhout lists some of the things that make code less obvious. He starts off with a rather interesting one, and that is event-driven programming. He says that this kind of design or architecture is not obvious because it is hard to follow control flow in a system. Functions are never called directly. They are dependent on the runtime like registration uh, of event handlers. And my personal thoughts on this are that event-driven architectures are a very, very strong and well-used tool in your game development toolkit. Event-driven architectures allow for a really nice decoupled way of developing your game. Think about how often you might have implemented a very simple observer pattern, or even when you drag and drop an event handler on a button or in the inspector. That would qualify and is event-driven as well, right? Also, as Professor Afterhout said so himself, dependencies are made at runtime, which is very nice since you are now able to deploy and develop uh, independently. So, in my opinion, you can use event-driven architecture as much as you want, but as wisely as uh, Professor Ausreit well, is right, you can create a horrible mess. And I also wonder what he thinks about the current trend of microservices. Well, these are all event-based systems uh, in their core or their root, right? But, well, that's not related to Unity 3D. So let's continue with the book. Um, Professor Austerhout says you should add proper summaries to handlers of events that say when they are subscribed and when they are invoked. This, well, seems like a good idea to me. I don't often do this, um, but it really sounds like a good idea and I might try this in the future. And he then raises his first red flag in a while and it says, and I quote, If the meaning and behavior of code cannot be understood with a quick reading, that is a red flag. Often, this means that there is important information that is not immediately clear to someone reading the code. End flag. <laughs> and I mean, duh, that's been the subject of the past 17 chapters of the book, right? I think it's pretty funny that he put us in there. <laughs> it's obvious, right? And another thing that makes code less obvious is the use of generic containers. But what are these? Well, Professor Ausserhaus said that many languages provide generic classes for grouping things together, like the class pair in Java. 
and like in a c-sharp context this could be like the class key value pair or maybe tuples john says that these classes are tempting to use since they make it really easy to pass around multiple objects in a single variable and he's right since I've taken up a more functional programming style, I use this strategy often. And although I often create value objects that represent these pairs so I can have them nicely named uh, and they fit my domain, like a value pair is a term from domain-driven design, which is simply a data structure which does not have a unique identity but is identified by the data itself. A simple example would be an object that, well, represents a home address or, well, for example, the the vector classes in Unity 3D would be value objects as well. And I can have two different value objects that point to the same address, which, well, makes them equivalent. Um, if one's speaking about the home address example, right? Um, this is what we call structural equivalence. But... Professor Aushaus is right uh, that using a key value pair as an output of a function is not really obvious since, well, it doesn't really translate to your domain. And he also has a very nice statement written in bold, uh, in a bold font, which says, software should be designed for ease of reading, not the ease of writing. And yeah, this is essentially what you have been talking about since the very first episode of this podcast. Readability of code is of great importance to any stakeholder of a system because in the end, everyone will profit from it. And the next practice that makes code less obvious is really interesting as well. And that is that you should not use different types for declaration and allocation. And the example he gives is a field that is declared as a generic list of some message class, but it is initialized as a generic array list of some message class. So he uses polymorphism essentially. He says you should not do this as it makes your code less obvious. And while I heavily disagree here, this is the entire purpose of object-oriented design, and it's to use polymorphism and properly to reduce dependencies. And we often declare generic lists of things based on some interface or abstract class in order to reduce the dependencies on concrete objects. It is a bit confusing to me why Professor Oosterhout would put this in here. His argument not to put it in the book goes as follows, and I quote, the actual type may impact how the variable is used. Array lists, for example, have different performance and thread safety properties than other subclasses of a list, so it is better to match the declaration with the allocation. So, yeah, in this particular example, it is just a very bad use of polymorphism, I guess. But I would say in most cases, polymorphism is definitely a good practice. And the last thing that makes code less obvious, according to Professor Ausserhout, is that some code might violate Reed's expectations. The example he gives in the book is of a function with side effects. So the reader will expect the function to do something, but it also does something else on the background. And we have talked about this a lot in the clean code episodes as well. 
try to separate the side effects from functions and make it abundantly clear that they are uh, that they are there or else you might well run into like really tricky buggy situations trust me profiling your game's memory with the memory profiler is never really that much fun so to wrap this chapter up professor Ausserhout says the following and i quote to make code more obvious, you must ensure the readers always have the information they need to understand it. You can do this in three ways. And the best way is to reduce the amount of information that is needed using design techniques such as abstraction and eliminating special cases. And second, you can take advantage of information that readers already have acquired in other contexts. For example, by following conventions and conforming to expectations. So reading, readers don't really have to learn new information for your code. And third, you can represent the important information to them in the code using techniques such as good names and strategic comments, end quote. So that was it for the chapter, Code Should Be Obvious. What do you think about all this? Do you think that the comments are just the only way to improve the code? Or do you have some other feelings as well, like I do? And I think that, for example, event-driven architectures are a really nice and cool tool to have in your game development toolkit. So much like logic in Unity 3D games runs on event-driven systems. And his advice on generic containers, uh, like using uh, simple tuples or key value pairs as results of functions, is, well, it is really a bad practice. You should make these tuples named objects so that they fit your domain and, well, you have something, well, you have some information and consensus about this. And this example about uh, polymorphism not used in the in the proper way is, well... It is valid as well, now I think about it. Um, I mean, if you initialize everything as like an I collection base class of some generic type, you can make some very bad decisions while operating on that data. Like lists or stacks or queues, they have different performance impacts, right? Uh, just like you said in the examples. But all right, that was it for chapter 18 code should be obvious and let's continue with chapter 19 and it's a short little chapter about professor Ausreid's view on popular software trends and how they relate to the principles of a philosophy of software design and i remember reading this chapter a long while back and thinking professor Ausreid does not understand test-driven development but we will come back to that later in this episode so let's start with the first popular trend in software, which is, of course, object-oriented programming and inheritance. And I think if you have read any books or blogs or watched videos about people explaining object-oriented programming, you have also heard the, the advice not to create deep, massive inheritance trees. This is good advice, by the way. You should not create massive inheritance trees. Inheritance is like a double-edged sword. It will provide you with polymorphism and flexibility, but it is also the most 
tightest coupling we have in OO. Massive inheritance trees are, a, are like a sign of bad design, and you should look for ways to break it and use composition instead of inheritance. Now, I remember that in a book called Object-Oriented Software Engineering, a use case-driven approach by Ivar Jacobson, a very good uh, description and explanation of inheritance and composition is given. And I'll add the book to the show notes for you to check it out. And I also wrote some blogs about it, and I'll link those as well. So you can read those, and, well, it may be a shorter read than the massive book, right? But all right, Professor Ausserhout was talking about the impact of OO uh, and what it had on our industry. If we use OO principles correctly, we can produce better software designs. And he says that a key element of OO is inheritance, which exists in two forms. Interface inheritance and implementation inheritance. And the difference between them is that with interface inheritance, we simply define function signatures, but no implementation. But with implementation inheritance, we do provide implementation details and subclasses uh, can choose to extend or change the implementation. You might implement this with an interface or an abstract class respectively. Just remember that implementation inheritance can be really problematic and should be avoided as much as you can. You might at some point at some point come to a situation where you need to implement something and choose to inherit from some class and override some methods but completely change the implementation so it doesn't even look like the parent class anymore. This will lead to issues in the future, trust me. I've been there. And Uncle Bob provides similar advice in clean code as well. He said that if you inherit from a class and override functions, you have now created a tighter dependency on that parent class. And furthermore, since you have now overridden the parent class's functions, you will most likely also introduce additional dependencies in the actual implementation of that overridden function. And Professor Ausserhaus says this as well. Implementation inheritance will lead to information leakage. That's a really nice way to put it, I think. If you override some function and you need to provide additional logic to extend the code, you will probably create dependencies on protected variables and fields of the parent class, which is information leakage. And he also says that in worst-case scenarios, inherited classes will need to access or they will need knowledge of all the parent class, uh, of all the, like, every parent class that has come before it, which will result in very, very complex code. So implementation inheritance should be used with caution. And I fully agree. And Professor Ausserhout also specifically mentions that if you need to use implementation inheritance, you should consider an approach based on composition which I already hinted at just a minute ago. And Professor Oosterhout uh, ends this particular section with the following statement, and I quote, Although the mechanisms provided by object-oriented programming can assist in implementing clean designs, they do not, by themselves, guarantee good design, end quote. And I agree. 
if it only were that simple, right? You really need to put some thought into the code. Follow best practices like the advising clean code and this book. And also, do not underestimate the role of experience of developers. Sometimes you will go against the best practices just because you have the experience to do so. But you should always consider the best practices and, well, don't totally go guerrilla mode, right? So the next section is about agile development. And agile has penetrated our community very, very deeply. And I don't know any people who actively use the waterfall method at this point in time. And Agile is a lightweight, flexible and incremental methodology for developing software. And Professor Ausserhout says something interesting here, which I also think is a false statement, by the way. And he says, and I quote, Agile development is mostly about the process of software development, organizing teams, managing schedules and the role of unit testing and uh, interacting with customers, etc as opposed to software design, end quote. And, well, I think this is pretty invalid since true Agile uh, in its core is just extreme programming marketed towards project managers. And in extreme programming, technical practices are at the core of the methodology. Agile was created as a way to battle management and create an approach based on rapid feedback and iteration with customers. So to say that Agile is mostly about the process, I think is a false statement. However, Agile and Scrum specifically have evolved this way because they were marketed that way. And I mean, project managers will go to courses pick their nose for two days straight in a classroom and then go home with a quote-unquote Scrum Master certification. As Uncle Bob put it so very nicely, Scrum is for the people side of software development and the technical side is mostly ignored. And I bet, well, um, well, let's have some fun. I want you, the listener, to ask your Scrum Master if you do Scrum, of course, and if you have a Scrum Master, but ask him or her what the technical practices of Scrum are. And I bet he or she won't know what any of them are. Originally, there are four practices. There is test-driven development, simple design, refactoring, and pair programming. And I also add a fifth practice to this uh, which is continuous integration and deployment, since I think we cannot live without this practice anymore in the current day and age. We need CI, CD pipelines to be productive nowadays. But really, ask your Scrum Master if he can list you the four pra like technical practices of Scrum, and I bet he or she won't be able to list them, let alone explain what they are and what they mean, and why they are important. Please let me know in the comments what your Scrum Master said or send me like an email to podcast at allthingsunity.com. And I wrote some blogs about Scrum and the technical practices before, which I will put in the show notes as well. And if you are interested, you can go read them. Um, and I really had a lot of fun writing them.
There's also another Uncle Bob book fully focused on Agile, which is called Clean Agile. How fitting, right? Which uh, I will also link in the show notes, by the way. And it's a great read, and it's essentially like a 300-page rant about his about the current state of Agile. And it's fun. Trust me, if you're a geek like me, at least, you might qualify that book as fun. But, yeah... Let's continue with the book. Um, Professor Ausserhard says that the most important element of Agile is the fact that we work in iterations. This is crucial to software development and design, as it is absolutely clear that we cannot anticipate everything with big upfront design. Each of these little iterations uh, evaluates and adds new functions and features. We do, however, need to consider that complexity is incremental as we uh, as we should do uh, like our very best to battle complexity as much as we can. And John then makes a statement where I absolutely can agree with, and that is that agile practices can lead to tactical programming. Agile can focus developers on features and, to, and not on abstractions. It encourages not to make quote-unquote big upfront design. But as Dave Thomas said it, and I quote, big upfront design is dumb, but no upfront design is even dumber, end quote. So don't fall for this. Don't fall into this trap when someone on the team says you will do absolutely no design because we will run into issues later in time. So developing incrementally is a good idea, but the increments of development should be abstractions and not features. That's such a good statement by Professor Oustaud, by the way. And he often has such a nice way to formulate his statements. And, well, this one is among them. And the next trend Professor Oustaud wants to discuss is about unit tests. And Professor Oustaud explains the two main forms of automated testing, which are unit and system tests or integration tests. He says that in Agile, the practice of testing is put at the center, which is totally true. Remember that technical practices of Agile, TDD, is one of them. And why do we need tests? Well, if you are going to do Agile and you're going really fast, you need something to make sure you are not creating bugs, plus you need to be able to adapt and evolve the code as time progresses. Tests facilitates refactoring. Without the test suite, you don't know if your code is broken after refactoring. You can find out, of course, by doing a lot of reasoning, reading and manual testing, but why not refactor the code, run that test suite again and see if anything breaks. It's far more efficient. And the next software trend Professor Ausserhout wants to discuss is test-driven development. And I can fondly remember this section since uh, even he fell into the trap of misunderstanding the practice of TDD. He says that he's a big fan of unit testing, but not so much of TDD because, and I quote, the problem with test-driven development is that it focuses attention on getting specific features working rather than finding the best design, end quote. And I mean, 
This statement always comes up by haters who don't like or understand TDD and it has been debunked for so many times now. Remember that in TDD you first write a failing unit test, then make it pass with the least possible change you can and the third step, the most important one, is that you refactor the code to fit the current or best design. Since you, do, since you now have a passing test, you can refactor as long and as much as you can as long as it passes the test. If you simply write the test first and make it pass, but don't do re the refactoring step so you skip it, you will indeed run into the issue that Professor Ausraut laid out here. But any serious practitioner of TDD knows that the refactoring step is essential to the practice of TDD. So, Professor Ausserhout saying that the problem with test-driven development is that it focuses attention on getting specific features working rather than finding the best design, well, it's simply false because this happens when people misunderstand the practice. And I remember that in one of Uncle Bob's talks, he gives some advice on how to start with TDD. You start to practice as in start learning TDD at home, not on your job. TDD is hard. First, get the hang of it in small projects you do at home because the impact of failing is not that high. Once you gain the skills and confidence, you can bring the skill to work and start practicing it there. If you learn TDD on the job, make sure you have a mentor or someone who carefully reviews your code including your tests, because you can really easily run into the fragile test problem, right? We talked about the fragile test problem in earlier episodes while discussing the clean code book. The fragile test problem happens when the test code is too heavily coupled to the production code, and thus any change to the production code will break lots of tests. And I mentioned a really great talk given by Ian Cooper, which is called... TDD, what went wrong, or where it all went wrong. And I'll put it in the show notes. Um, you should watch it if you're interested in TDD. Uh, it will give you some great insights. And Professor Ausserhout then follows with another example of a software trend, uh, which is design patterns. And I think we have discussed this in like the previous episode as well. You should not sprinkle design patterns all over your game. It will make your code very flexible, but also overly complicated. And you will be probably like breaking domain language since in your domain, there's probably not singletons, observers, visitors, or factories or something. But design patterns do absolutely have their place in software. Just don't overdo it. And when you implement a design pattern, it raises the level of abstraction. You don't have to explain the nitty-gritty details uh, of how you implemented your enemy spawner, but you should simply tell your colleague that you used an observer pattern, uh, which should be enough for him to understand the basics of the implementation. Um, well, the, this is exactly what Austerhout says. The greatest risk with design patterns is over-application. Don't try to force a problem into a design pattern when a custom implementation is cleaner. And he's totally right here. As with many ideas in software, don't apply them dogmatically. 
apply them where they make sense. And the last software trend Astrohout wants to dig in is the practice of getters and setters in software design. We've also talked about this in previous episodes during our deep dive into clean code as well. Exposing lots of getters and setters will lead to fragile code and it will expose the inners of your objects. Remember that objects hide their implementation details and expose operations. When there are lots of getters and setters on objects, you will violate the law of the meter very quickly. Remember that law? The law of the meter says that you should only know about your direct associations and not about strangers. So don't create like a train wrecked function like player singleton dot instance dot get player dot get left hand dot get weapon dot fire. Having streams of getters like this is very fragile since it exposes the inners of your objects and it it's actually part of the ritual to summon the spaghetti monster. Trust me, just don't do it. Um, <laughs> Professor Ausserhout then says the same thing, and I'll quote him. Um, exposed instance variables mean that part of a class's implementation is visible externally, which violates the idea of information hiding and increases the complexity of a class's interface. Getters and setters are shallow methods, typically only like a single line. So they add clutter to the class's interface without providing much functionality. It's better to avoid getters and setters, or any exposure of implementation data, as much as possible." End quote. And it's also really nice how he correlates getters and setters to the concepts in this book. They are indeed often very shallow, Plus, they will pollute the interface of an object and hide, like, leak information. So, that's it for another chapter. What do you think about all this? Do you agree with Professor Ausserhout on all these topics? And what's your opinion about massive inheritance trees in object-oriented design? How about Agile being focused on tactical programming? Or unit tests being essential to software design? with TDD not being the best way to create a proper test suite since it focuses on features and not abstractions. And as we have discussed earlier, the refactoring step is essential with each test you add. And what's your opinion about design patterns and how do you think getters and setters impact software design? If you have any opinions about this, please let me know and throw me an email at podcast at allthingsunity.com. We will, we still have some time left for this episodes and we only have one chapter remaining in the book to review uh, to be done with this entire deep dive into a philosophy of software design. And it's a rather long chapter, but yeah, I'll try to fit it in. So the last chapter of this book is about designing for performance. And you might have heard before that really performant code is often obscure and unreadable. But in the next chapter, Professor Ausserhout will shed some light on how to design for performance. Up until now, we have discussed many strategies to battle complexity with design, but well, nothing about performance. So yeah, here we go. 
So let's start with Professor Ausserhout's thoughts on performance. He says that if you try to optimize everything for maximum speed during the development process, you will create, you will create a lot of unnecessary complexity. And furthermore, most optimizations, quote unquote, don't even increase performance as much as you think. But on the other hand, if you ignore performance long enough, you will eventually run into issues where your code is simply too slow. So John's opinion is, well, somewhere in the middle, where you use your basic knowledge of performance to choose design alternatives that are naturally efficient, but also clean and simple. He says that the key is to, quote-unquote, develop an awareness of which operations are fundamentally exp expensive. And examples that come to mind there are like HTTP requests or any other I.O. operations. And in a Unity context, there are lots of slow functions like find objects of type, uh, well, some generic type of T. Um, in calls of like massive update loops, for example, these find objects of type will query the entire scene over and over again. So if you put them in a loop, they will greatly slow down your game. So don't do it. And Professor Ausraus says that the best way to find out what operations are expensive, well, is to test them. But let me tell you that doing performance tests in isolation can be really difficult to pull off. However, they will give you a rough estimate about uh, the performance of something. So I agree that performance testing is most certainly something you must do when performance is a critical aspect of your game, which it most likely is, by the way. And also remember that in gaming, it's not just code that slows your game down. It's also polycount and shaders, post-processing effects, lighting and shadows. Um, so make sure you also configure your quality settings in Unity 3D as well and bake your shadows and maybe add some occlusion culling and use other best practices for increasing performance in games. I would really like to spend an episode on all of these things, but let's do that in the future. And let me know if that is of interesting interest to you. And Professor Ausserhout explains how he did performance testing in one of his projects called RamCloud, where they created fine-grade performance tests for, custom, for a custom-made framework they created. This is a cool and, well, a very great idea. Go and check out the book if you're interested in the details. I won't bore you with them. Um, well, and the next section is about something very important, and that is measure before modifying. It can be such a waste of time um, when you spend some time on something which was not worth optimizing in the first place. Uh, trust me, I fell into this trap before. Always try to remember this because it will save you a lot of wasted time on something you thought to be slow but after a while you find out there was something else far worse in the codebase. And Professor Ausserhout says that programmers' intuition about performance is unreliable. It's even true for experienced developers. You always need to measure before you start optimizing this way. And this way you will find out uh, like what code is actually slow. 
and a Unity Profiler will be of great help here. Trust me, when you enable deep profiling, you are able to view some very detailed information about everything going on in your game. Like for each single frame, you can see whatever is happening. So you can also like additionally install a package called the memory profiler which allow you uh, it allows you to create snapshots of your running game and then inspect the, the memory in great detail uh, so you can see all the allocated memory for all the objects in your game um, this can be a real lifesaver to find and eradicate uh, memory leaks for example I've ran into the like these issues many times where I didn't uh, did not delete or destroy uh, audio clips and sprites and textures and or, or other kinds of objects that were allocated with side effects for functions for example uh, and this will at some point crash your game uh, and especially on iOS they are really hard on the memory usage um, so Measuring the performance of your game regularly will also allow you to set up at like a certain baseline of values where you can base future improvements on. If you do not measure regularly, you might find out at some point that performance, uh, as you have, it, it has drastically been decreased. Plus, having some kind of baseline will allow you to verify uh, that your improvements are actually having some effect. And John then says something interesting, and I'll quote, There's no point in retaining complexity unless it provides a significant speedup. And I agree completely. Sometimes, in order to gain a significant performance boost, you need to accept some additional complexity. Like if you have to do like image processing, you can use like raw pointers and memory to uh, manipulate images. Or when you have to do reflection, you can use like a fast glass generator. And the fast glass generator pattern is one I first saw in a, in a course I did in Udemy a while ago. It simply caches the calls and the results to the activator class in the reflection namespace. And then, well, when a similar call comes in, it calls the cached function to return the correct object. Uh, I checked out if I can find the source code, but yeah, it's hidden behind the paywall of Udemy. So uh, I'm not going to share that code since it's not mine to share. Um, but it's a course called C-Sharp Performance Tricks, how to radically speed up your code, which I will put into the show notes. And if you're interested, I also wrote a review on this course when I finished it. It's a really great course. And if you want to know a little bit more about increasing performance in C-Sharp, uh, get your hands on it because it's, it's really cool. Um, so, the next section about how to design for performance is to design around the critical path of your game. So make the mission critical code fast and do not start optimizing the code that does not follow that path be before you're satisfied with the critical path's performance. This seems a little bit common sense to me, but yeah, doesn't it? I mean, you are absolutely want to optimize the code that is fundamental to your game instead of some one-off functionality that we'll use in like a single scene. So for example, 
if you're developing like an uh, like an RTS game, a real-time strategy game, you would want to optimize uh, the moving and animating of all the units on the screen, like the rockets and bullets flying over the screen and the particle effects and like audio players, for example. And you might uh, might want to include optimizations to camera movement and occlusion culling as well. Don't start optimizing like the waterfall particle system. You only use in one scene at a single location in the map. That will not benefit you as much as like the critical path optimi optimizations. So, and some advice I will add to this section is that you will always want to use the correct collection types for the collections that you need. Don't just use uh, like lists of T for everything because it's easy. There are far better performant collection types for specific purposes like queues, stacks, dictionaries and hash sets for example. Also, read up on garbage on like the garbage collector that is used in .NET. This is a generational garbage collector, um, which means uh, there is a distinction between long and short-term uh, or short-lived objects. If you keep objects uh, you use shortly in the short-lived cycle of the garbage collector, it will greatly optimize your game. Plus, uh, if you use like link queries, you sh uh, you really need to watch like the two array or two list or two dictionary calls uh, that might be spread around your code uh, because they also create a, like a significant performance hit when you're allocating when you're allocating all these copies. Um, but all right. If you guys are interested in an episode uh, about increasing performance in Unity, we can do a, like a full deep dive uh, in a future episode. But Professor Ousterhout ends this chapter with an example, um, which I'm not really getting into since it's a very detailed description. And well, if you get the book, you can read it in there. So now there's only one very short chapter left called the conclusion and I will simply read the contents of this chapter out loud since Professor Ausserhout articulates it very very well and it's already very compact uh, so here we go this book is about one thing complexity dealing with complexity is the most important challenge in software design it is what makes systems hard to build and maintain and it often makes them slow as well. And over the course of this book, I have tried to describe the root causes that lead to complexity, such as dependencies and obscurity. I have discussed red flags that can help you identify unnecessary complexity, such as information leakage, unneeded error conditions or names that are too generic. I have presented some general ideas you can use to create simpler software systems, such as striving for classes that are deep and generic, and defining errors out of existence, and separating interface documentation from implementation documentation. And finally, I have discussed the investment mindset needed to produce simple systems. The downside of all these suggestions is that is that they are like they create extra work which in early stages of a project and furthermore if you aren't used to thinking about design issues 
then you will slow down even more while you learn to do good design techniques. If the only thing that matters to you is making your current code work as soon as possible, then thinking about design will seem like a drudge work uh, that is getting in the way of your real goal. And on the other hand, if good design is an important goal to you, then the ideas in this book should make programming more fun. Design is a fascinating puzzle. How can a particular problem be solved with the simplest possible structure? It's often fun to explore different approaches and is a great feeling to discover a solution that is both simple and powerful. A clean, simple and obvious design is a beautiful thing. And furthermore, the investments you make in good design will pay off quickly. The modules you defined carefully at the beginning of your project will save you time later as you reuse them over and over. The clear documentation that you wrote six months ago will save you time when you return to the code to add like a new feature. The time you spend honing your skills uh, will also pay for itself. As your skills are and experience grow, you will find that you can produce good designs more and more quickly. Good design doesn't really take much longer than quick and dirty design, once you know how to do it. And the reward of being a good designer is that you uh, get to spend a larger fraction of your time in the design phase, which is fun. Poor designs spend Poor designers spend most of their time chasing bugs in complicated and brittle code. If you improve your design skills, not only will you produce higher quality software more quickly, but their software development process will be also more enjoyable." End quote. So that's it everyone. We have discussed the entire book called A Philosophy of Software Design. Well, this was such an awesome book, and I believe this book will go into history as one of the great books written about software development, like the Gang of Four Design Patterns book, or Domain Driven Design and Clean Code. I think all software and game developers and designers should at some point in their careers read these books. Again, you don't necessarily need to agree with all of this, but it's really great to have this information in your brain so you can act upon it. I know that well, I know that we are running a little bit out of time, but I really want to quickly review the information in the book and well compare it to the ideas presented in Clean Codes uh, to show like the contrast. So I decided to do a podcast series about this book because I wanted to dive into alternatives for clean, like Uncle Bob's Clean Code. The Clean Code book is getting rather dated and there are a lot of mixed opinions about Clean Code, but also about the author Uncle Bob. Some people don't seem to like him because he's very prescriptive. Plus he'll tell you straight to your face that your code is crap and you need to follow his advice in order to change it and reach like a clean state in the code. And well, personally, I really like that. I'd rather have someone say it straight to my face instead of giving slight hints on how I should improve my codes because they don't want to make me feel offended, quote unquote. So 
just tell me, we're all adults. And also remember that people often criticize code, not the person who wrote the code. Sometimes for people forget that code is always written with the best intentions and with the current knowledge at hand and like the current experience of the developers. And yes, sometimes you look back and think, I or we should have done it this way instead of that way. These things happen and we simply need to accept that. But books like Clean Code and the philosopher, uh, philosophy of software design are here to help us. There's so much great stuff in here to set you on the right path and guide you towards clean software design. As, Uncle, as uh, Professor Austerhout said in the conclusion of the book, software design is mostly about battling complexity. So keeping your design clean will have a positive effect on every stakeholder involved in the project. It's not just it not just allows you as a developer to stay sane, but it will also allow your manager to sleep at night. And in this book, we discover what Professor Austerhout thinks is the fundamental problem to software design, which is problem decomposition. How do we take a large daunting problem and subdivide it into small uh, understandable chunks we can digest and reason about? I think this is indeed a very difficult problem in many cases. And we also talked about how working code is not enough. There's also, like, this is also like the mantra on clean code, right? We as developers need to write not just the code that well compiles and works, but which is also understandable, maintainable, and of course, structurally correct. And a way to get there is to understand which mindsets are involved in writing code. And according to Professor Osterhout, there are two, the tactical mind and the strategic mind, where in tactical programming, a developer solely thinks about implementing a feature of fixing a bug as fast as he or she can, not thinking about like added complexity, code reuse, and anticipating future changes. With the strategic mind, however, you do focus your efforts on maintaining complexity and design for reuse and generality, and you take possible future changes into account. And Professor Ausserhout also mentions a personality who takes the tactical mindset to the extreme, which he calls the tactical tornado. He is that dude on the team who always meets his deadlines, always manages to deliver something that seems to match the requirements, but he leaves a mess in his wake which the rest of the team can clean up. And the tactical tornado is often praised by management because he or she can come up with solutions really quickly and he or she might get promoted faster, but they like the managers don't know that in the end, this person is actively actively uh, working against them because he's like he's creating technical debt. And next up, there was one of the more famous concepts in this book, which was Professor Austerhout's uh, observation that modules should be deep. I think. This is such a nice way of articulating it and also to visualize a class or component implementations. 
Deep modules are modules that provide like a really small and concise interface compared to the implementation. Remember Professor Austerhout's favorite interface, the IO interface of the Unix operating system? It only provides five functions, but it handles everything you need to do, like manage files, uh, interrupt calls, threads, integrating external devices, and much more. This is the perfect example of a deep module. And like shallow modules, on the other hand, are modules that provide like a large, often like cluttered interface compared to the implementation they provide. And John's example of a shallow module in the book is a linked class implementation you will find in your favorite programming language. And I talked about this before, but I personally think that shallow classes have their place in software design. I mean, should we really delete the linked list class from the programming language and like make everyone implement like the, the, the linked list class himself just because it's shallow? No, of course not. These small shallow utility classes are really nice to have since they raise the abstraction level of the code and they increase consistency and they can be unit tested to and be verified to work every single time. And thus you do not need to retest all of the custom implementation always and everywhere. So I think that shallow modules should be considered when they provide useful utilities. And yeah, he is right when he talks about the stream implementation in Java, which is built on a decorator design pattern. And thus all these classes are very, very shallow. But that's one of the, like, the main reasons I don't really like the decorator pattern in the first place. Um, I prefer an abstract factory pattern more, but yeah, that's just me. What, what about you? Let me know. A good quality deep modules have is that they hide implementation and thus do not leak implementation details. And information hiding is a big concept in software design and not just OO. The fact that OO has access modifiers doesn't make information hiding unique to OO. Other languages have different means of information hiding through scoping, for example. But a nice, concise, deep module will hide information. And a way to do this is not to expose internal data structures used inside the module from like the module's interface. And like another really great concept in this book was the advice that you should always try to design a general purpose solution rather than a special purpose solution because it will bite you in the ass at some point later in time. And Professor Ausserhout says you should design your modules to be, uh, and I quote, somewhat general purpose, by which he means you should design your module to tackle the problems or requirements you have today, but also keep in mind you might use that code in a different context as well. This is part of the strategic mind and having an investment mindset. And this all leads to another interesting concept presented in this book, which was that as a designer of the software, you should pull complexity downwards as much as you can. This also relates to the deep modules again. 
If you pull complexity downwards, the interface of a module will become simpler. A great tip John gave in this chapter is to consider config, uh, config files. They can be a really great tool to postpone complexity and put the responsibilities somewhere else. But if your system requires a massive config file, or maybe even multiple, you just move the complexity to someone else. Think about it. For example, if we design our game with scriptable object uh, with a scriptable object architecture in mind, we make it very flexible. But the complexity of getting it all to work is now in the hands of the designers. This can be a blessing for them, but also their worst nightmare since they are now responsible for managing all the complexities of the interdependencies of all these scriptable objects. So there needs to be a fine balance. Don't just shift problems to other stakeholders in the system because it will make your life easier. Remember one of Professor Ausserhaus's quotes, and I quote, when developing a module, look for opportunities to take a little bit of extra suffering upon yourself in order to reduce the suffering of other users, end quote. Isn't that a great quote? I really like that stuff. And another concept this book gets its popularity from is the concept of defining errors out of existence. And to my knowledge, Professor Ausserhout is the first voice in software industry to articulate this concept in such a nice way. There are probably other people who have like insisted uh, like uh, on similar concepts, but the way Professor Ausserhout presents this concept is really, really good. Defining errors out of existence means that you design your APIs in such a way that exceptions are not part of them. There will always be exceptions, but you can design some of your own exceptions or, uh, or APIs to mitigate the need for exceptions. Remember the example ga uh, John gave in the book? It was about the substring functions uh, in multiple programming languages. So for example, in Java, if you pass indices that are out of bounds, an exception will be thrown. But in a language like Python, I think, when you pass out-of-range indices, they will be clamped between the min and the max length of the string. This is a way to define errors out of existence. And yeah, you cannot always solve the, a problem this way, but it's still a very nice concept to keep in the back of your mind. Um, we also talked about a very simple and yet effective way to improve software design, and that is design it twice. Professor Ausserhout taught us to always make at least two designs for something. This allows you to see trade-offs and consider alternatives, uh, however bad they might seem. And also, when you make design, uh, when you make yourself design things multiple times, <clears throat> you will in the end become a better designer because you gain experience and you will be able to spot bad designs early in the process. This is a really great skill to have since I think that all developers are architects as well. You need design skills to properly implement software. If you just follow Jira tickets, for example, without considering design and impact of the complexities, your code will turn into a mess. Trust me. And there were also a couple of chapters dedicated 
to something Professor Ausserhout is really passionate about as well. And that is, of course, commons. And I mean, in the beginning, I ranted a lot about how I disagreed with John. But he, make, he really made me reconsider my point of view. And I think that comments in form of summaries in a C-sharp context are really helpful uh, for software design and documentation purposes. Summaries are special kinds of comments that will show up while coding through IntelliSense. So in Rider or VS Code or Visual Studio, uh, they will show like little nice uh, pop-up menus with documentation of classes and interfaces, functions, properties and variables where you type the code. This is indeed very helpful. But Professor Austerhout also talks a lot about other kinds of comments, which he calls implementation comments, which are simply inlined comments that describe the implementation. These are the kinds of comments Uncle Bob wants you to delete since they are clutter, get out of date and become misleading. And I still think that these kinds of comments have no place in the code. I feel that the code must be written and designed in such a way that you do not need implementation comments. It's like Uncle Bob said, comments are at best a necessary evil and they are just a failure of ourselves to express ourselves in code. So I still do think that writing as less comments as I can improves the design of the software. And oh, summaries I would not consider comments, they, since they are more like metadata to executable constructs. So they serve a purpose. And another interesting practice Professor Austerhout presents in the book is something I would call common-driven development. He tells you to write comments before you write the implementation of a class since it will allow you to focus on what and why, but not on the how since, well, the implementation is not there yet. I like this practice since it matches up with the test-driven development practices. There are well, there are a lot of similarities to these practices, like writing the comments first will make your comments actually useful, since they allow you to express your thoughts in natural language before you write them down formally. Also, it's more fun, since we all hate writing documentation. So if you write, uh, if you do it after you wrote the implementation, you will quickly uh, write it like write like a crappy comment uh, because you already checked out mentally. Um, Professor also, Professor Austerhout also has a nice chapter dedicated to choosing names for things in code. This chapter nicely aligns with practices presented in Uncle Bob's Clean Code, and I think both of them will agree with each other on these concepts. And Uncle Bob says that names should be intention revealing. And I totally agree. And Professor Austerhout says the same thing in the book. So they are on the same line here. And the last topic I want to touch upon uh, is a chapter about consistency. This is a really important concept in software design. And consistency really helps with maintainability and understandability of a code base. Consistency is not just in naming, but also in coding standards, guidelines, and patterns. Try to document these things and enforce the coding standards through IDE settings. So for Rider, for example, create a settings repository and make every programmer connect to it to enforce it. 
trust me, uh, this will really help you a lot. And also, another great thing in the book are the red flags that uh, Professor Oosterhout will point out every once in a while. These are simple uh, one or two line uh, tips or tricks to keep an eye out to improve your software design. I really, really like uh, this way of pointing out stuff. It really like makes them pop out. They are also visualized in these red blocks uh, of text, so they are impossible to miss. They're just really cool. I really like that stuff. But I think this episode has been going on for long enough now. And next, we will be digging into a book called The Pragmatic Programmer by Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas. And I fondly remember reading this book, and it always stuck with me. It's just such a great book. But, alright, I hope you liked this deep dive into a philosophy of software design by Professor John R. Oosterhout. I certainly did, and I've learned a lot from revisiting this book and making these podcast episodes about it. It made me rethink some of the concepts on a far deeper level just because I needed to like articulate my stance and opinion about it. But what do you think about this book and all the episodes dedicated to it? Please let me know. You can contact me on podcast at allthingsunity.com. And also, don't forget to leave me a review on your favorite podcasting platform. And since the last uh, episode of this podcast, we're also available on Samsung Podcasts now, iHeartRadio and Podchaser. If it's not on your favorite platform, please let me know and I'll try to get it on there as well. So, yeah, this was a long episode and it took me a long time to get it done. Uh, I've been very, very busy lately. But, yeah, really, thank you for listening. Um, See you next time. And remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.